Hello, I'm Dr. Ruth Schmidt-Nevin, clinical psychologist and child psychotherapist. Welcome to Talking Child Development. This podcast is promoted by the Association of Child and Family Development in Melbourne, Australia, which is a not-for-profit organization that aims to disseminate information about all aspects of child and family development to other professionals, professionals and to the broader community. We are concerned in these podcasts to go a little deeper into the whys and wherefores of child and family life. We're also trying to get away from a focus that's purely behavioral and strategy and quick fix based to look at what lies beneath and why things happen in families the way they do. You can find more information on our website at www.acfd.com.au. Today, I'm delighted to welcome Dr. Susan Emmett, who is Senior Lecturer and Programme Coordinator in Early Childhood at Federation University in Victoria, Australia. Susan has been involved in early childhood education and the translation of research into the practical environment for over 30 years. She was a research fellow at Charles Darwin University, where early childhood literacy was central to her research particularly in relation to Indigenous education. Welcome, Susan. I wonder if we can start with asking how you found yourself in this profession and what led you to an interest in early childhood? Hello, Ruth. It's, it's a delight to be here today. Um, look, really, what, where, where my belief and my love of early childhood education started was when I was very young myself and when I was probably around six and a half years of age and I had a, a little sister who was born and I can remember starting off by you know playing with her and and just loving those interactions with her as a little baby watching her progress working with her in the kindergarten environment and I remember going into the kindergarten environment when she was four and I think that's what triggered my love of the early childhood setting and the early childhood environment. Um, and it probably, if I think about it, that was the underlying thing that, that made me think I want to be a teacher and I want to be not, I was very clear, I didn't want to be a primary teacher, I wanted to be a kindergarten teacher. And it was something that I that I worked on, worked towards, um, and actually finally got there. But I think the you know the, the the degree or the diploma at that stage that I did was an early childhood and a primary degree. But I chose to work within the early years, and it was because I loved the environment of the the um, early childhood. Um, environment that we set up for children, which seemed to me to be much more flexible, much more focused upon children's um, interests and needs, and it seemed to be much more, um, uh, yeah, it, it, I found it was much more educationally um, effective, I, I believed, and, and that's, that's how I started. Yeah. That's very interesting in terms of efficacy and education. And um, you've been involved in many different areas related to early childhood education. And I was particularly interested in your research into Indigenous education and literacy. Can you tell us a bit more about that? 
Yes, I can. Um, I was actually involved in a project through Charles Darwin University, through the School of Social, um, Re uh, Social Research, whereby we were looking at the ways in which children in the, um, in, in the early years learnt to read. And as, you know, many people will be aware, children in, in particularly in remote Indigenous contexts, whereas where I was working um, in areas in the Northern Territory, um, places like the Tiwi Islands, places like the Barclay region around Tennant Creek, Alice Springs, some of the remote areas around there, children in those communities often um, do struggle with with literacy and with reading and part of the reason for this there's many reasons for this is but they're actually not often in that academic literacy discourse um, that we actually have if, if children ha have come from different environments so for example um, while they they do you know learn and, and speak two or three or maybe even four Indigenous complex languages, English language and reading is such a, it's, it's such a different discourse for them. And part of the, the, the research that I was doing was looking at a program particularly called Accelerated, the Accelerated Literacy Program, which was a program that was all through, went through the Northern Territory, and we were evaluating that program. And we one of the things that we actually found was that children who were engaged in this accelerated literacy program um, did it, it did certainly increase their, um, their their literacy abilities, and they were higher up in terms of um, some of the concepts that they were learning. And the beauty of the accelerated literacy program is that it really um, it, it, reduce, it reduces the stress uh, for children because it provides some routine for them. It provides highly explicit teaching and it does provide a highly enjoyable learning, learning um, based upon, you know, really engaging children's books. And we found that it did, in fact, when it's taught well, within these Indigenous settings, it actually did um, increase children's literacy abilities, which is very exciting. The other program that we were looking at was a, uh, an interactive online literacy program called Abracadabra. And this was a program that was developed through Concordia University. And we did a randomised control trial on this program, looking at children who were engaged in this program um, versus those who were not engaged in this program. And we actually found that those who interacted in, with this program and, and for, for, a, um, for a period of time, I think it was for about nine months, ha actually had quite a gain, particularly in their phonological um, awareness. Yes. Um, so, so there are programs out there that are can work very well with children in these complex environments. Well, mm. thanks for thank thank you for that. That's very interesting. I've noticed in in your research that you're not just focused on the children, but also on the caregivers and staff in early childhood settings. You use terms such as caregivers as attachment partners, which I think was the topic of your PhD research. Can you tell us what you mean by this? Yes, I can. Um, in, through my PhD, um, I actually looked at the importance of um, teachers, early, particularly early childhood teachers, and their 
um, their abilities to form very strong, secure attachments with those children with whom they they work and and you know on a day to day basis. And this is for for children right from you know from young babies' birth right up to you know five and a half six years of age when they go to school. And I. Um, actually developed a program, a pre-service program for pre-service teachers to support their understanding of um, attachment, operationalising attachment theory, putting it into practice so that they could actually engage in these practices um, more easily within the early environments. Um, and very often it's, it's very important to all, also realise that the the caregivers or the teachers of young children, their own attachment history is also something that is we have to think about as well. So their own history in terms of their security of attachment relationships in their, you know, earlier years yes. influences their own um, absolutely. I think ability to interact. Yeah. That's such a, a vital area, actually, because very often people come into early childhood sometimes wanting to resolve an issue or yeah. perhaps a problem or, or they're, they're very attracted to that area because perhaps they want to work through something. So I think it's not exactly thera therapy, but I think it's, it's about self-awareness, isn't it? It is about self-awareness. And, you know, I don't think pre-service programs are very good at helping, um, you know, young teachers to look at and explore some of those areas. Yes. And these are the areas that I'm really interested in. Yes. 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 Mm. And I see that you're concerned with what you call relationship-focused theory and practice in your teaching. And that's a subject after my own heart. And it sort of follows what we talked about in terms of being reflective. In these behavioral and reductionist times, professionals seem to seek for solutions before they investigate what's going on relationally. They, they seem to want to give people a quick answer um, and this also links, I think, with a tendency to rush to pathologize children's behavior, even from an early age. And I, I wonder what your views are about this and how you think that might link in with early childhood education, what actually goes on, for instance, in childcare centers or kinders and so on. Yes, look, look I, I absolutely agree with that. I think so, you know, we know that... Um, we know that that importance of forming, um, you know, meaningful interactions, trusting, responsive interactions with children is such an important area. And we know that if we can do this and do this consistently um, within our early childhood setting, that many of the, the so-called um, you know, behavioural issues that, that arise in, in early in early childhood environments can be to some degree, some degree mitigated. You know, I think that, you know, if we if if we if we're able to work with children and with families in a way that is is inclusive, that is building trust, which is building strong relationships, 
um, that that can really help us understand and and guide children's behaviour so that we can get in early to to try and avoid and work with families to avoid some of those more um, situations where children's behaviour may be you know pathologised and seen as 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 negative. Absolutely. Um, so we're really yes. talking about a preventative service, really early childhood is a preventative, child care, all of these uh, uh, kindergartens, they really offer the opportunity for a major preventative service to help prevent um, uh, difficulties escalating, it, but, but also identifying problems at a much earlier stage. You know, if children have yes. perhaps problems that are related to um, being on the spectrum, some other issues that these can be picked up so that they don't have to go into school, they don't have to have years of, of difficulty, that things can actually be understood at a much earlier stage. They can. And I think, again, you know, this is why it's so important for us to work to, to enable pre-service teachers. And that's my, you know, the area that I work in, in, in educating, so, you know, it's teachers before they go into the field to, to start to recognise some of these things and to understand some of these um, particularly emotional um, difficulties that they might be seeing in children or, as you say, emotional, social, cognitive, you know, intellectual difficulties they might be seeing, developmental um, issues, so that they can put interventions in place at that early, in, the, in those early years. Yes, yes. Because we know that this is the time when brain development and the neurological um, systems are forming and the connections between the, 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 all of the... Um, the neurons in the brain and if we can get in at those early times we are going to prevent a lot and I think it's also important to remember that you know early childhood is the often the first contact that parents might have families might have outside their homes um, and so um, it's so important that teachers teachers have good knowledge about this, can recognise this and have good strategies where they can work with families and refer families and put things in place as needed. So yes. absolutely, it's a it's yes. it can be an excellent preventative, um, uh, preventative system in, in early yes, yes, yeah, yeah. And just getting into the practicalities of what constitutes a good childcare centre or a good kinder, can we start with how play can be used creatively? I see you've been involved in exploring play as legitimate curriculum in early childhood. And, and this reminds me of an experience I heard about some years ago when parents in a parent-run kinder wanted the children to produce what they called product each day as though they were on some sort of assembly line. Yeah. And they, they wanted what they called product in the form of a picture or a craft item. And they certainly didn't see set much store by creative play. And I, I wonder what your thoughts are about that. Mm. Yes, look, this really concerns me. And I think... Um, this idea of product is so alien to the concept of play because what play is, is, play is or a play-based curriculum, which is what we, you know, expect for, from our early childhood educators in Australia, is that we, we, we want children to engage spontaneously in play, that there's an intrinsic motivation, if you like, to play. And there's an incredible creativity in play that's not adult imposed. And if you're getting children to produce something and you're getting them to, you know, make, make sure they all have these so-called products that are likely to all look the same um, to take home and, you know, and parents 
love that. You know, a lot of parents like that because they think, oh, gosh, you know, the, the children have really done something today or they've yes, produced yes. something. So it's a very it can be very, very seductive mm -hmm. for parents. Um, it's not really um, looking genuinely at authentic, an authentic play-based curriculum. Now, children may produce their own products. You know, children are, are, you know, beautiful products that children can produce. Maybe a block building that is intricate and well-designed and, and the child might have spent the whole um, session or the whole day developing. They can't take that home. Um, you know, and but what you could do is take a photograph of it. Yes. Talk yes. about it. But, but you know, this, this idea of an end product that has to go home every day is very alien from the philosophy of a, of a, of a sound play-based program. And, you know, we know from the research that, that play-based at this stage and this age, and in fact right up to eight years, provides an excellent foundation um, for children, particularly, you know, is if within that play-based environment we also have opportunities for teachers with intentional teaching as well yeah. and working and scaffolding children's development in a whole range of different ways. Yes. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm sure, I mean, we, we obviously agree that childcare and early learning is an absolutely huge contributor to children's mental health yeah. as well as the transition to learning uh, at school. And so I'm going to ask a very provocative question. Why is it that salaries for staff are so pitiful? And it seems to me so contemptuous to underpay staff as though their work is simple childminding, which it's assumed um, most of the time that women do as a matter of course. Um, what are your thoughts about this? Do you think that politicians can be involved to recognize the need for high quality staff and appropriate salaries? Right. Look, I think things are changing. I think things are gradually changing. When I first started in the field, it was actually very, very difficult to get into early childhood education, and it was seen as a speciality. And it was up there with things like, you know, physiotherapy and occupational therapy. Um, I think over the years, you know, we've had ebbs and flows, and I think, you know, sometimes... The, the, the pay parity of teachers in the early childhood sector and the primary sector haven't been equal. At the moment, they're actually, um, they, we have, you know, got parity again and the, the, the wages are actually um, equivalent. So that, that's, that's certainly a positive. But I think that um, part of the problem has been, in, particularly in early childhood, and particularly, unfortunately, with perhaps with, with the childcare sector as well, you know, the children's services um, sector, has been that people think, oh, gosh, you know, this is what women are supposed to do anyway. Women are... Um, a good at emotional labour, you know, a, a good so-called mother in the home looks after children and, goodness, she doesn't expect any payment. Now, of course, we don't say that out loud, but we, I think there's a part of the field that intrinsically or the part of the community that, that, that think that. And, and it's also, I think, um, 
you know, it's an unconscious thing. I think that we often think as well that it's, you know, children in those early years are just playing, you know, so that that the educators are just making Play-Doh or just playing with children and they don't understand the value and the profound importance of the early years, which we now know through all the, the neurological advances, how important those early years are. So I think you're absolutely right. I think that it's... Um, it, you know, we, we've got changes that, that have to be made in our understandings and we slowly are, you know, we are slowly getting there. One of the really big changes has been the, um, the development of the, the early years learning framework, which I think has, has helped people to understand, um, you know, even more the validity and the importance of the early years and and what actually does happen and the complexity of the teaching that goes on in those early years. One of the things that's worried me over the last uh, years is the privatisation of childcare and people talk about it as the childcare industry and I don't like the sound of that. Uh, You know, childcare is not an industry, it's a service. And um, the idea of running childcare for profit um, really means, I mean, of course, people have to be paid the right salaries, and of course, they deserve an income, everything. In other words, the, the child care centre or the kinder has to be run in a business-like way. It has to be able to survive. But the idea of it being uh, privatised, that someone is actually making a profit out of it, and people, in fact, do make, I mean, there's a whole history of people trying to make profit out of childcare and and, and and that whole area going completely bust. And it's a problem. And it also reflects on the kind of staff that some of these centres attract, the kind of training they have, the service that they run. I know this is quite a, a big area. It's a provocative question in a way, but it is a big worry, I think. And I, I feel that children deserve better. I think families deserve better than a privatised childcare. And I just wonder what your thoughts are about that. Yes, look, over the years, I've seen many, many different children's services. And I would absolutely agree with you that it's against my philosophy and the philosophy of many of my colleagues to make money out of children. And that's effectively what private um, childcare is Mm -hmm. doing. It's making money out of children. And when you make money out of anything, it's very, very tempting to cut corners. And, of course, corners are cut. Now, there are some really good private childcare centres out there. There, You know, there are, I have been in in some. But um, there are some centres that um, are quite concerning in some of their practices. And as you say, you know, the biggest the biggest cost in a, in a children's service is the staff, and that's 80% of your, your, you know, your costs go towards staff. So when you think about that, um, what do you cut? You cut you cut staff. Now, there is mandated laws. You know, we do have um, laws that tell us we have to have a certain number of staff when staff to child ratio, et cetera. But unfortunately, there's also ways you can get around some of those things as well. And sometimes I have seen that where staff staff are cut, where, you know, and, and where less experienced staff are brought in because more experienced staff cost more. And so, you know, and, and one of the, the examples that I always give is people say to me, oh, but, you know, there's private schools. Yes, there are private schools, but guess what? Any profit that those private schools make 
it goes back into the um, into the school. So they're able to, with those profits, add value add to the school with a new music or a new science labs or new computer labs or whatever. I don't always see that happening in private. No, I, was, I would agree with you because it's about um, it's making a profit, but not for the for that profit to go back into. So there shouldn't be a, a, a huge gap between public services and completely for profit, but there should be making running a, a successful business, but the profits going back into the service. That's right. You know, That's rather right. than for the profits yes. to go back into one particular group or individual or, or, or whatever. Absolutely. Yes, I totally agree. Totally agree with that. Yes. Our children are too precious. It's too, we're, we're at a time where, where those, you know, we're in a, a very small window of time when we can work in this age group to, to do so many things to make a difference um, to that child's life that we need yes. to be throwing everything we can at those opportunities. Um, and, you know, I would agree that it's not always the case if you are making profits out of children. Yes. And just thinking, just going back into the whole area of staffing, I'm, I'm just wondering about encouraging men to work in childcare and early education. I found in my daughter's experience of childcare and now my grandchildren that the presence of men is a game changer for a lot of the children in childcare, especially the boys. And I wonder what your experience is of this. Mm, I've had a lot of experience um, working, as you know, as a centre director, working, employing staff. Um, and, you know, look, I think around in the field, if we think about the statistics, it's around about 2% of um, men that work in early childhood. And that's an extremely low um, number. And, you know, we've got young children, boys and girls, who are in these little boys and girls, are in these centres, in centres. Um, for If you add it all up in those early years, if they're in a centre full time, it's actually more than the um, entire time that they might be in primary and secondary school. So if they're from, you know, from when about three months of age to five, if they're full-time in an early childhood, you know, long day centre, they are there longer than all of the primary and their secondary schooling. Now, those children may not then, and particularly if perhaps if they're from a family, um, you know, a single parent family, maybe a mother, they may not have contact, any contact with male role models. So they're actually seeing, they're not seeing a full um, spectrum of human development. So they're actually not seeing examples of men taking on differing roles, such as perhaps the nurturing role. So they're not giving opportunities to see that. They're also not having opportunities for some of the boys who perhaps need examples of a male role model, both girls and boys, you know, for some of the things that, that, that men do like, and not only men do it, but women do it too, but things like rough and tumble play um, that is so important to yeah. children's development. So I, I would actually say that... Um, you know, we, we, we do as a society need to grapple with why this is not happening. And, and as you said before, part of it could be wages. 
Part of it can be that whole, you know, image of what a man is. Part of it can be pressure. I actually had one situation when I was working as a director and I was employing staff where we had an application from a, a male, a man, who was excellent, you know, an excellent. And I had a mother on the committee. You had parents on committees helping you um, employ staff. And this particular person, I can hear her clearly, this is, you know, about 10, maybe 15 years ago, she said, I will not have a male in this centre. I will not let you employ a male. And so, of course, that influenced, you know, even though you put the, the other side forward, she'd had negative experiences, et cetera, that perhaps, you know, put, put it, you know, she was scared about her, her little girl who was about two at the time. Mm -hmm. So the attitudes are still there and men, you know, have to fight those attitudes as well. And that must be incredibly courageous. Yes. You know, because if you think about it, of of a of a if a, if a woman um, caregiver or woman teacher, you know, might pick a child up and you know rub their arm or rub their back, and the little girl goes home and says, you know, my teacher rub my my back, nobody would think about it. But if the same male teacher did it, people would question it, and it might it probably innocent. But you know, so there's all these images that we have to grapple with. All these. Um, things that we have to grapple with as a field, as a profession, as a society. Yes, yes, it's a, it's it's a terribly sad, isn't it? It's as though ordinary yes. affection and relationships um, yeah. that men and women can engage with really have to be held up into the light of enormous suspicion. Yes, anxiety. Yes, and the, the thing is that in my experience, I don't think that 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 protects children. I think it actually isn't helpful at the end of the day because it doesn't normalise those sorts of relationships. So it's it's highly problematic and and tricky. It, it is problematic. Yes, yes. I just wonder. Um, what you would consider to be the essential hallmarks of a great childcare centre if we look at it in the most ideal terms? Um, well, I think the most important thing for me to be looking at, um, and I guess it's the area of my research, as you said, I've, I've focused my research particularly around the relationship-focused practice. So I believe that um, one of the key things to look for is those interactions that are happening within the within the um, center? You know, are they warm? Are they responsive to the child? Are they building trusting relationships? You know, are they fair relationships? Are you feeling that every you know that the teacher's not excluding or the the caregivers not excluding some children? Um, and are they making sure that they're helping each child to feel included, to feel, you know, part of the setting, to feel confident? Um, are, they, um, are they managing children's behaviour in ways that is, um, that, that is appropriate and positive and guiding children, not using... Um, in, inappropriate disciplinary approaches or language that might be, um, you know, inappropriate or very strong, etc. So do, when you go into the environment, does it feel as if dignity and rights of children are upheld? That's really important. Yeah. And, and I think that that would tie in with ideas surrounding um, 
making sure that, that there's good, strong interactions with parents as well, that when you walk into the environment that you're, you feel like a partner, that you don't feel as though you are, um, you know, being excluded. You're not shut out the front gate and told you can't come in. You can come in and join in when you want to. The, the, the gates are open, the doors are open for parents. And that you're feeling as though you are, you know, you're also respected and you're supported in your, your role as a parent. Um, but as well as that, you need to have a look at the, the program that the, 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 the um, centre is offering as well. Um, you know, making sure that, um, you know, that the, 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 the program is offered in a way that is building upon your own child's needs and interests. Yes. That when, yes. you walk, when you walk into the room, you, you see that it looks inviting. There looks to be experiences, a range of experiences around that look exciting and inviting. And the children, you know, generally are focused and engaged in those experiences. Yes, yes. The other thing I'd look at is, you know, can staff tell you about what, how they make their curriculum decisions, you know, why they're doing what they're doing, you know, some evidence that they are critically reflecting on their practice every yes, day yes, would be yes. a very important thing for me to look yes. at as well. So you're really combining yep. this with, yep. you know, what you consider to be the essential hallmarks of a good childcare centre with also what you would advise parents to look for. Um, you know, that's, yes. a, that's a very important part of it, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah, no, yes. if, we, if we walk in, you know, we need to know, we need to feel these, see these things and feel good yes. about it. So I think, you know, that a, the, 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 a childcare centre, you can tell so much by just walking in there and or a children's centre and, and watching the educators, watching the way the educators interact with children, how they're building relationships. Yes, yes. How they're scaffolding learning. Yes. So really what we're really talking about is not about the, the fact that the childcare centre has to have fantastic facilities, amazing rooms. You know, I mean, of course they have to have good equipment. What we're yes. really talking about, what we've really talked about through this whole um, session here is is relationships. We've really talked about engagement and relationships as the absolute um, central plank mm. of, mm. of really good childcare. And that is what it's all about. It's all about relationships, that, that the people working, the staff are really there. They are in the position of the parent, as it were. Mm. You know, they're not the parents, of course, but they are in the position of the parent. It's an enormous, uh, it's a highly responsible position but it has enormous potential. So it's absolutely about relationships, isn't it? It is about relationships. Yes, yes, yes. it is. And whether you're in, in, a, in a spanking new centre that's got everything that creeps and crawls or whether you're in a centre, many centres I've worked in, where we didn't have very much money and yet I believe we had very high quality practices. We used a lot of materials that we found, you know, open-ended yes. materials. They don't have to be brand-new materials that you... Um, that you, you you purchase. Yes. What's yes. important is the way you work with those children, the relationships that you um, develop with those children, the yeah. way you individualise learning and, and focus upon um, the interests and the abilities of those children, both yes. indoors and outdoors. Yes. Mm. Well, 
Susan, thank you so much. I think that's that's been really amazing and so helpful to kind of reiterate these, these very important core principles. So thank you very much indeed. That's an absolute pleasure. Pleasure to be here, Ruth. Hello, this is Dr. Ruth Schmidt-Nevin again. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. You may be interested to know about my audio trainings based on the many trainings I have run throughout Australia and overseas. These include training on relationships, attachment and the brain, time-limited psychodynamic psychotherapy and skill building in therapeutic work. You can access the details of all my trainings on my website, which is at www.centerforchildandfamily.com. That's A-N-D, so www.centerforchildandfamily.com. Thank you.